0: Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode. This week I have another screenwriter interview for you and I will be discussing the new Scottish film Beats with its writer Kieran Hurley. The film came out last year. It was directed by Brian Welsh and stars Christian Ortega, Lorne MacDonald and Laura Fraser. If you are a regular listener you will know that I like to try to bring a spotlight to interesting films coming out of the UK whenever I get the opportunity to do so and Beats is just one of those films that stood out to me as having a strong voice and identity behind it as well as being an enjoyable cinematic journey. This was a wonderful conversation, and we cover Kieran's career history, writing advice, thoughts on what makes certain types of stories work, and also his ideas around regional representation in British cinema. I think you are going to gain a lot of great insights from him, especially if you don't live in a major production center like Los Angeles. It's always fascinating to hear how others have got involved in screenwriting in other parts of the world, and what sort of perspective comes with that. Thank you again for continuing to support the show. You know I'll certainly appreciate it if you do share this episode on social media, if you enjoy it. We did have some trouble with the audio at times, but I've done my best to fix that for you. So without further ado, let's get on to the episode. Hello and welcome to The 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and today I'm joined by Kieran Hurley who's calling in from Scotland. Kieran is the screenwriter of Beats which is based on a stage play that he produced earlier in the decade. So Kieran, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: So could you introduce yourself for the listeners, Let's start out with how you first got involved in writing for the theatre.
1: Oh, and, and writing for theatre. So most of my writing, up until um, writing Beats, Screenplay, which was co-written with the director, Brian Welch. most of my writing has, has and had been in, in, in theatre. I guess the question of how I got into it, oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a big one. I um, I'm not sure how much your listeners uh, care about the ins and outs of various factions of contemporary theatre production, but uh, I I guess I, I sort of started making theatre in quite experimental sort of like devised sort of context in a big in big you know as a as a student with a big sort of squad of other people that were interested in the sort of experimental and the avant garde, and it was through making work that way that I then started writing sort of text for performance and then. Eventually, my gang that I'd been making work with all sort of disappeared to go to other parts of the world or to go and sort of pursue something else in their life. So I just, I wrote a solo show, not out of any real desire or conviction that I needed to be some kind of monologuist or whatever, but just because that's economically what I had available to me. Sure. You know, I couldn't afford actors, I couldn't afford anything else. So I wrote a story that I told in front of an audience, which I was allowed to do in a venue in Glasgow called The Arches, which doesn't exist anymore, but was fundamental to my development and fundamental in other ways, which I'll talk about later. To beats as a story, so that's how I got into it. And beats the play was um, was uh, was one that came a few years after that sort of first one. But I was still playing around with telling my own stories on stage. Uh, I also now write plays in a more sort of a conventional relationship with a writer director process. Mm-hmm. But beats uh, was a story. That I wrote to be told and performed on stage by me into a mic, joined on stage by a, a DJ, a guy called Johnny Whoop, who soundtracked the whole thing with like a kind of period soundtrack of acid house and ambient electronica. And it was a it was quite a quite an event um, for us for the small scale that we that we made it in. But that was that's kind of that's getting on a beat. But that's like my way into. To, to to write in for for theatre. If I don't know if you want any more than that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, that's great. Um, so did you study drama or creative writing at university, or did you get into it another way?
1: So yeah, it wasn't a creative writing course. It was like theatre studies course at Glasgow University, a degree course, and uh, and and I guess one of the things about these sort of arts and humanities uh, degrees is it wasn't actually like a formal practical training it wasn't like um there wasn't any like tutoring in creative writing you know the writing that you're doing for the course is essay based it's academic it's like preparation for postgraduate study if it's preparation for anything at all so the really important part outside of everything that i was learning on the course was actually like about connections made across peers you know um uh, and the opportunity to spend a few years like kind of playing around in a sandpit of ideas so um so that yeah that was the course but it was glasgow university i'm originally from edinburgh if that means anything to your listeners Mm. um but i I left edinburgh to study in glasgow and i still live and work here now
0: yeah i can i think the the listeners in britain will know and for the americans we can clarify that edinburgh is the capital of scotland glasgow is not too far away from it but they, they have very distinct regional identities. Yeah,
1: they do. They really do, even though they're really, really close to each other.
0: Interestingly, I, I spoke to Brian Dunnegan, who is also from Edinburgh, and uh-huh. he was um, one of the heads of the London Film School for, for many years yeah. and developed their master's program in screenwriting, and he suggested that the Scottish education system did encourage a lot more creativity and more general knowledge of more subjects and the English system, which tends to fit us into more narrow streams from a younger age. I don't know if you had any experience with that or any, any feelings about maybe getting that out of the Scottish education system.
1: Yeah, well, one of the things the Scottish system does for some reason, and I'm not quite sure like what the the, the, the rationale is for it, but you you an arts and humanities degree will be over four years rather than over the three that you do it in England. And so... You have this year at the start where you can like jump ship into different courses if you need to. So you're not necessarily going to major in what you start out doing in first year, if that makes sense. So um, it does actually, yeah, there's a little bit of room for dicking around. I know that sounds terrible, but it's a hugely important part of growing up um, and hugely important part of finding yourself. And if you embrace it properly, hugely important part of learning who you are as an artist, should that be the path you're on, you know? So for me, that was, yeah, no, that was a a big part of it was, um, I mean, what is a university education for if it's not for some part of self-discovery? I think we're losing so much of an understanding of that culturally that it's very, very important to hold on to.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think one thing we're learning as we're writers as well is that failure is part of the process and having more time to develop is... It's also acknowledging that along the way you're going to make mistakes and learn from them, yeah. as opposed to wanting to be assessed all the time at, and trying to hit the best marks every single time.
1: Yeah, for real. I hadn't even really thought of the parallels there with like a writer's development and like that sort of time studying. But but you're right, the same applies.
0: All right, so let's try and um, share for the listeners who are not aware of what the original stage version of beats was like Mm -hmm. could you maybe paint a picture of what someone could expect if they were i've seen a little clip i think on youtube there's only a few clips of what was happening but there is i think a two minute one of a a trailer for for the stage play but yeah and
1: those those clips are like this was theater with Tiny budget. Do you know what I mean? We had something like, as well as the in kind support of like getting to use the, the marketing and the rehearsal space of the venue and the technical support, like there was lots that they gave us. In terms of actual money to play with, like I had like a few thousand pounds to like pay myself and everyone else involved and all of that. So it was rough around the edges. And this is before the days of digitizing everything, pre COVID times, it's getting really like, it's really on trend in theater to have like really high end digital versions of your work. It's like that. It just didn't exist when I was making beats. So anything you can find is a shadow of what it was because it wasn't made for that context, do you know? Um, But essentially, in terms of, say for your listeners who won't have had an idea of of what the original stage play was, that'll be most of your listeners, I should have thought. Um,
0: (laughs) Quite possibly.
1: It was me in a wee black box theatre usually, for the most of the time, sitting at a desk, reading into a microphone. Uh, I guess allusions to the work of Spalding Gray, if anyone wants to look him up. And behind me is a. Alongside me is a dude at a set of turntables. Right. And behind me is a big screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and off stage is a VJ, a guy called Jamie Wardrop, who was live mixing, sort of like ravey period visuals that also illustrated the story I was telling. Behind me. And the room was filled with like haze and smoke and moving light and really sort of like pulsing with the kind of um, technical apparatus of a rave or club event to make it feel like it's creating a kind of ambience and atmosphere in which the story could really authentically live. Since we're not working with actors or working with literal representation, I'm doing my Jack and Ori on Ecstasy act and Jamie's painting portraits of it digitally behind me and Johnny's... Soundtrack the whole thing, and we we had to hire in like speakers that are beyond what you normally get in a in a theatre venue that size for it to for it to properly work. So it was quite a pulsy, ravy, sweaty kind of affair for a piece of storytelling theatre, mm-hmm. um, and it made for quite an interesting experience. But in terms of what it was on the level of story, like that was for, in terms of something that was later adapted for screen, a lot of the time when you see like. A stage play that's adapted for screen, it's you can kind of see the staginess of it still in there because theatre is traditionally like you kinda think of like how a stage play works. You're often thinking of like six characters all in one fixed setting, like a unity of time and space, like people in a living room, all you know, dialogue that goes on for ages, orbiting a central idea as tensions mount. It's like a totally different shape of a story than you get in filmic storytelling. Whereas the difference with Beats is because I'm telling a story in the third person, it still followed a fairly conventional and fairly recognisable in film worlds like Hero's Journey arc, if that makes sense. Like the story itself traversed through time and space and followed like quite a conventional coming of age narrative. It was like a road movie for the stage. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it made the process of adapting it for screen, like in some ways, much more sympathetic. But yeah, it was uh, it was not written with that in mind. I had no preconceived notion that what we were going to do somewhere down the line was turn it into a film. It was really just at the very, very start of me getting to be paid anything whatsoever for um, for writing. And it was before I'd had a proper like, theatre commission uh, as a playwright. So I had no notion that we were going to be turning it into a film. I just wanted to make a great theatre show. And I think we did that. Yeah. It was a bit of a calling card for me for a while. Um
0: But it was a while ago now. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to ask, I think you've painted a really great picture here of kind of what someone would have seen when they went to see it as this original production. And I I can see how when you're doing a narrative this way, you've almost created something like an outline, which is kind of before you write the screenplay, you've got this, you know, eight to 10 page document where you've kind of lined out how you expect the story to progress.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: But one of the things I'm wondering about is also the fact that as a writer and you're performing this work,
1: Mm.
0: you're getting immediate feedback from an audience on any specific night as to what is working and what is not working in a way that, you know, really is often reserved in the screenwriting world only to the comedy writers who also perform stand-up and go out and try out material in front of an audience and then get that immediate feedback. So... Did, did that influence any development of the story? Did you start to notice anything that was working better than something else and adapt the story according to the audience response?
1: I think there's always subtle versions of that. And the play, the, the play version went through various stages of development and tryout amongst like, a sort of supportive community of peers or whatever, you know, before it first hit a full audience. I wasn't, with this show, making massive changes on the road when it was touring or, you know, through its original, like, Edinburgh festival run or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, But you certainly do adapt even unconsciously and subconsciously and play to certain moments. And what I normally find, it's been a while since I've made a show like that, but what I normally find is that if I look back at the rehearsal draft of the script at the point at which I was learning my lines and putting the script down, you know, if I look back at that after completing the original run, you know, where I've been performing it every night for a month or whatever, like I will normally find some fairly large discrepancies between what I originally wrote and what I said I was going to do and what I actually was <laughs> saying <laughs> by by the time of the end of the run. And most of those have happened subtly and sometimes even subconsciously in response to audience response, as opposed to um, a massive like conscious rewrite. It'd be take something quite seismic in audience response for me to really, really, really rework it. I think because normally I hope to have my my shit together a little bit more before, <laughs> before before the point of introducing it to an audience anyway I guess, but in terms of whether that fed into the development of it as as a screenplay, not necessarily in a conscious way. Probably what it did more was I developed I'd been living this story, telling it on stage. Do you know, like giving voice to its principal characters myself. It, it makes you quite emotionally bound to a version of it to the original version of it so actually that was in some ways quite hard when it came to adapting for screen because it, it, I'm sure this is the case for anyone adapting their own material or letting someone else adapt their own material whether you've been performing it or not but there's a there's a process a hard and painful process of letting go of things yeah uh, you know so there's th- there's things that worked on stage that were never going to work on screen. And then there's things that need to happen on screen to grow this small story into something bigger and more substantial that can carry the the, the weight of a, of a of a ninety minute screenplay. So that kind of experience of performing the original play text in front of an audience multiple times, yeah. On one level, I guess I did they did develop the play a bit more in terms of how it then developed later as a, as a as a screenplay. It probably just made me. Slightly more reluctant to let go of things that I could have let go of sooner. Do you know?
0: Yeah, that, that's really. I'm, I suppose one of the benefits of doing it this way is that you are being much more conscious about the inner worlds of each each character because you've got to inhabit them as the performer. Yeah. Um, but then one of the things that maybe could have been more of a challenge is the, the visual language because you're operating without that and then having to think, okay, how did this scene that I saw in my head actually, what would this have looked like in if we're going to put a camera there and actually film it?
1: And it also works the other way as well. So because what I'm doing in the stage version is telling a story, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm adopting a kind of omnipotent narrator position as a storyteller moving in and out of character voices but for the most part and um, uh, narrating the, the the story and that means that a lot of it is written for that form it's mm-hmm. written for that mode of storytelling and it, uh, and so some of the some of what the writing is doing is like image building it's like uh, quite poetic in style and is uh Spending a lot of time building and constructing a particular image in the audience's mind, like of Jono, the wee guy at the centre of the story, looking out a window maybe, and in the back of a car, nervous, wide-eyed, as the as the rain streaks down the side of the window and refracts off the off the light of the streetlights passing. I'm doing all this with words, yeah, and that takes time, and it takes page time and like performance time. But in in cinema, that's like. That's done in the shop, yeah. That's like a frame, boom, done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a it's a cliche um, and it's a truism, but like the screens just going to eat up story in action, like in a way in which me sort of l- leisurely enjoying like building this image <laughs> as a storyteller, and um, it just doesn't do. So uh-huh. no. So what you kind of while I said earlier, the play was actually more sympathetically kind of structured as a as an outline, as a skeleton for film, because it's like a fairly conventional hero's journey arc and that you don't often get in in stage plays for the different, for the reasons of form. Um, The the reverse is also true, like uh, there was also loads that was really hard about adapting it because the form that it was written for, this storytelling form, just meant that, well, actually when I shed all of this away, when when I get rid of all of this, like, Uh, poetic image building and world building and just strip this down to the bare bones of like story beats. You're like, there's not a lot happens here. (laughs) There's like eight scenes. Uh (laughs) So so me and Brian together both had a power of work to do to go, okay, cool. We know that we want it to do this and we know that we want it to have the same energy and feeling and sort of vibe and principle arc (laughs) as this original. But we've got a big job to do to make just so much more stuff happen and introduce so many more characters and like really build an ensemble and a world that has like twists and turns and jeopardy and all the things that you want from like a satisfying coming of age movie.
0: Yeah, and as a writer, you can include these details. It's just uh, it is also a case of handing over that creative control in another way because you're asking a cinematographer and a set designer and a costumer and the actors themselves to to interpret these instructions that you leave. There there might be certain ideas that can only be conveyed in words in that sense, but then the translation into the visual side is something that you know you're you're handing over to the your creative yeah. partners
1: yeah i mean c- completely it's like uh, so it's you're right it's not that that stuff is by any means out of bounds for a writer and in fact like get it in there do you know like if you've got an idea for how it looks like uh, and certainly i think writers who are writing for screen need to be thinking about how what they're writing actually works on screen so mm-hmm. you need to be writing visually and thinking visually all the time my point is i guess or my reflection is more just about the um the amount of time storytelling time taken to enjoy that particular image on the level of words in this kind of storytelling theatre world mm-hmm. is, is 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 something quite different in, in writing a screenplay I think do you know so it's like there's just there's there's just a lot more shit needs to happen. <laughs> like it's just in the original it was like a one hour 70 minutes probably it ran at the play. It only runs at 20 minutes less than the film but so much more stuff happens in the film, like a crazy amount more stuff. If I was to beat out what happens in the play as like a beat sheet for 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 a screenplay, it would be a twenty minute short. It really would. So yeah, it's just a fundamentally different medium, and it's a completely different skill set. They feel so related on some level uh, as skills, and I guess they are. But there's just a there's a lot of different stuff going on.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's really important to have that acknowledgement at the start is to say is this a film yeah because this this is something that comes up a lot in my writers group which has people who want to write for television and people who want to write for film so there's always that question coming up when someone has brought a certain story in and it's just not quite working in the format that they think it is someone might have an idea they think this could be a film but really how much content you have here? Is is it 30 pages does this work better as the introduction to a larger story and then there's also shorts and I guess when we're starting out like shorts are a brilliant place to begin because they're they're lower budget there's more experimenting and you can try and you know really hone your skills to tell a story in a in a shorter time frame
1: yes exactly yeah and so it is a question always worth asking the tricky thing is when you just don't know the answer I've been in sort of like, um, like pitch meetings um, or even like early stage development meetings where the question's been raised, you know, are you sure this is a feature film? It feels to me like it might be a TV drama. I've not always known. And sometimes actually I've just kind of gone, well, like... I mean, it could be either, right? Yeah. <laughs> like if someone's going like to say to me, "Actually, no, make it a TV drama," then sure, there's a whole bunch of different things that it needs to do, and how it needs to behave, and be, and work, and operate to be it. Right now, it's a one-page pitching document. It could literally be anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, you know, it, it's a, it, it, and so I find it a tricky thing to answer sometimes when, um, when like uh, collaborators or development folk or someone I'm pitching to like asks that question. Uh, because sometimes the truth is the idea could be anything and it's just a matter of what your conviction is around what it needs to be for you and that something's just the thing that's worth listening to. I've been developing an idea just now and who knows whether it'll get anywhere, but the question has been repeatedly asked actually as to whether or not this is actually a TV thing. And I've just had to really ask, like, like almost go beyond the kind of like rational like no, in fact, it is a film, but for these reasons, you know. And just ask myself what I really feel it needs to be mm-hmm. for some nebulous reason, and then just sort of like dig in on that because it's something's really hard to know in advance what the right thing is. And when you've got all when you've got so many different opinions around the table in the world of development, do you know what I mean? It's it's it can be hard to hold on to the the, the course that you're actually um uh, wanting to set out on. It can be a tough one.
0: And when you first started working with Brian Walsh, was he more set on the idea of this being a film from the start as well?
1: Oh, yeah, 100%, because of his own passion for what he wanted to be doing at this moment for himself as well. So it's that thing where I think it's the meeting of the source material, like, yeah, maybe it could be Telly. Someone met with me about it for Telly, actually, someone who'd seen the, 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 the play. But Brian, his way into it was he'd already... Completely independently of having seen the play, he'd already been going, I think he'd been doing a bunch of telly um, before uh, doing beats. He did a a film that was almost entirely self-funded and produced out of film school, which ended up doing really quite well called In Our Name, and then he did a lot of telly, and a lot of great telly, and he was wanting to make a feature. So that was his conviction, if you like, do you know? He, he wanted to make a feature, and he, and he had already. This is prior to even knowing that the film, that the play Beats existed. He wanted to make a feature about the 90s rave scene in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at the time, he was thinking maybe he'd be set on the East Coast. Um, yeah, in, yeah. But anyway, he was talking to a friend about this, and the friend recommended that he go and catch Beats, which happened to be showing for just like a few days at the Bush Theatre at that time. This was back in 2012 when Beats was just brand new off the shelf. And um, so he came along and then I didn't even have an agent at this point. So he was sort of flirting with me and I was treating him with all the suspicion with which I had been taught to treat like people from the big bad film industry that are going to come and exploit you. (laughs) So we kind of like scoped each other out for a wee while before going, actually, no, no, this is good. Like we totally are coming from the same place here we can we can do something with this but yeah all of that's a long-winded way of saying for him it absolutely was a film and that was because the play worked as a film like I don't think he would have suggested adapting the play if he didn't see it working as a film hmm. but he was also coming to the process with a conviction that what he wanted to be doing at that point as a filmmaker was make a feature film so I think that these convictions that we have as for want of a better word artists are as much a part of the um, you know what we need to be doing now for us that's An important part of the conversation in the whole what is it is it a this is it a that is it the other do you know it certainly was in making beats
0: yeah the the way you kind of describe it in in the sense of he was interested in making something also set in the the same Mm -hmm. realm Mm -hmm. that it feels like there's something kind of zeitgeisty about it or maybe even to tie that into the the hero's journey concept that you've mentioned, yeah. uh, you know, Jung's idea of this kind of collective unconscious mm-hmm. that maybe other artists around the same time are also processing. Well, you know, the nineties are kind of becoming history now they, mm-hmm. they have passed and what happened during this time, what did we learn from this? And to kind of follow up with this question, something that I've been interested in asking you about is of course, the, the film is set in this unspecified location in central Scotland there's a lot of local identity in the film as Mm. well as aspects of life that I think would be familiar to the wider audience in the rest of Britain as well. I mean, Mm. I grew up on the Isle of Wight, which is pretty much, you know, geographically as far away as you can get from Scotland within Within, the same country, but being on the exact opposite end. But there's so many elements of this because of the way that everything is is set up in, in Britain in terms of you know, in the 70s and earlier, there was a sense that the younger people could be allowed to go and drink in the pubs and kind of be watched over by their elders and things were a little bit different. And then this sense that actually in in our generation, it was the kids were going out to the the forests to go and drink or to the beaches or wherever it was, somewhere Mm -hmm. where they couldn't be monitored because there was much more strict control over consumption of alcohol and things like Mm -hmm. this, um, identification. But, yeah, I think one of the things I wanted to ask, you know, when I started writing, I set my first story on the Isle of Wight. You know, why why do you think we do this? Why do we like to write about where we're from uh, as writers?
1: Oh, it's a good question, isn't it? Um, I'm going to jump, bounce back to the zeitgeist thing. Oh, sure. no, There's two. Which am I going to go there? Um, let's do, so the zeitgeist question about beats is a big, important thing. Um, uh, when I was writing the, the play, it was seemed like a bit of a weird thing to do. Why is this dude writing about the 90s? And it quickly became very zeitgeisty for, 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 I think, obvious reasons. For me, that at that time of writing the play, so if I was writing it in, like, 2011, it really felt like the, uh, the free party movement and sort of rave scene and rave culture was, like, the last, like, really subversive um, political, sub, political um, like, artistic, if you like, uh, or youth subculture in Britain, to not to, yet to be mythologised, it feels like that has changed now. That has begun to be mythologised in the kind of cultural consciousness. But at the time, it doesn't feel like we had a huge amount of stories about it. If I was on, it, if I'm being honest, yeah, and it felt like it. it, it no one had um, yet regarded it in the same way as as, as punk. Yeah, not quite. I mean, it was there, but not not in, in maybe the same way. And then as we were developing and writing the film, like, all of these 90s stories started coming out. And sometimes it was a bit like, oh, no. <laughs> Shane Meadows brought out This Is England 90 and stuff just as we were, like, trying to get the thing financed. And we were like, is this good for us or bad for us? I just can't tell. <laughs> and it's sort of constantly you're in that place where um, sometimes if you feel you just accidentally happen to hit a finger on a bit of a pulse and, and yeah, you like maybe it is sort of understandable within that kind of Jungian framework you were offering. I don't know. But it, it did certainly feel like something that people had an appetite for. But then the other thing you were asking about was um was about writing from like where we're from and our own experience. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's a big one these days, isn't it? Because there's big sort of ethical political questions um uh that are very present nowadays in the sort of discourse around storytelling around yes writing from your own experience but also around like how the extent to which um people should or shouldn't go beyond that and write around and write from positions that are like entirely different to their own lived experience you know uh for me the thing about writing for, about where you're from as as one of those altruisms isn't it people say to you write what you know yeah if you if that's what you want to do I think the reason for me that I write in a language and in a voice that is like what I grew up around, is just because it feels like the most obvious thing to do. Before I even get to the kind of politics of that, or before I even get to whether I have some kind of cultural agenda with that, it feels natural to me, especially with when writing these teenage characters or whatever, those years in our own lives are so formative. They're so formative of our, of our own worldview. And people that only incidentally touch our lives at that time can still like play a really big fundamental part in our um, sort of value-shaping experiences and can really sort of haunt our subconscious and form like quite a big part of us. So they're all kind of there rattling around, like asking for attention somewhere when we sit down to write, you know? So I think, I think people write about where they're from in order to make sense of the world from where they're standing. You know, I think it's as as, um, simple and as complicated as that, really. But then for me, once, you know, that's all true, but then there is also the thing that comes after, which is I do want more... Scottish accents on screen, like performed by Scottish actors. <laughs> Do you know, like there is yes. even even for me, like a middle class, like white, like thirty four year old man can still like. I even I am still going. There's a dearth of representation here, even just on that issue. Do you know, um, which is obviously nothing like a dearth of representation in other in, in, in other ways. But but it's frustrating for me that the people who um, people who talk like ordinary Scottish people talk aren't on our screens more, you know. So, like one of the one of the best, uh, some of the best feedback we got on the script in development was when someone read it who hadn't read it yet, and it was quite late on. Read it and fed back to Brian. He was like, "That is how people. That's how Scottish people talk." And I've never read a script that accurately feels and reads like how Scottish people talk in the same way as this. And that that's not. It's not something we were trying to do or whatever, but it was so gratifying here, you know. Um, it really was. So all of that stuff matters to me too.
0: Yeah, when when your particular culture or subculture or you know geographical area yeah. is associated a, as well with, let's say, one particular film that isn't painting it in the greatest light, which would probably be Train Spotting. You know, if if yeah. anyone says they've seen a Scottish film, it's Train Spotting. Yeah. Beats doesn't necessarily feel like it's in any way responding to that. To me, it feels like it's more akin to things like Sing Street, the Irish film Mm. about um, young teenagers Mm. who want to form a band. And that's set in the 80s, I believe, you know, with with a lot of nostalgia in it. You know, Derry Girls, which is, you know, making comedy out of these authentic situations from how it's like to grow up in these different parts of the UK that don't really get... Any attention on them unless people are looking at all the social issues, uh, bloody Sunday, this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's also kind of this pushback to say that no, there's a lot of life and joy and lots of things to celebrate in these places as well.
1: That's really lovely to hear you say. And one of the things that we were both and Brian in particular when it came to actually like shooting and cutting and making the film um, that one of the things that he was really, really, really keen on was like that this is a story that is told at the boys. eye level with the boys it takes their experience of the world like really seriously and cares about it and it's not it's not zoomed out slightly in in order to make a commentary about their lives there's absolutely like no shade on some of the brilliant films that have come out of the tradition of like uh socialist social realism in british cinema um but our film was doing something slightly different we're not going we're not inviting an, uh, an audience to look at these boys from this town in a particular way to ask and provoke a bunch of questions around them. We just want to tell a story that is actually of their level a little bit more, yeah. and that's kind of how it's operating a bit. And our reference points in that were actually mostly not British cinema. We spoke, we, you know, we spoke about it with Neil and I a lot in terms of like just a film that we love that's driven dialogue driven between two slightly haphazard best mates. So yeah. that's obviously. A you know, cult British film, but mostly we're talking about um, Dazed and Confused, or we're talking about La Haine, or we're talking about uh, Do the Right Thing, or we're talking about itu Mama Tambien, mm-hmm, you know, yeah. and, and so yeah, you're right, I think that is reflected in both um, the writing and in the film itself, feeling um, a world away from some of the stuff that we uh, typically associate with Scottish stories. Um, that's not to say that, you know, obviously people go story about Scotland and a drug subculture, people instantly go urban welsh. And of course they do. <laughs> sure. And that's not to say that any of that was any negative baggage for us. That's fine. If folk wanted to be talking about it being the next train spot and, you know, when we're doing the, the press rounds promoting it, then we will absolutely <laughs> take that. I only wish that that uh, prophecy was reflected at the box office right enough. But there's absolutely no baggage at all from that, but I think you're completely right to, to notice that it's in terms of its relationship with its characters and the kind of form of the story and the tone of the story, it actually is doing something really, really quite different.
0: Yeah, Itumama, one of my absolute favorite films yeah. of all time, and unfortunately, one I haven't had the chance to dissect on the podcast yet because it's a very hard screenplay to actually get hold of. There is a, an English version in the writers guild library here in los angeles but um almost impossible to get hold of the the original screenplay and i could definitely feel those kind of influences in this and Lane obviously with the black and white and the yeah just this kind of we're going to follow these characters around and see what their lives are like see how it unfolds and just yeah there is much less of a a ken loach mike lee i'm going to kind of shock you by showing you the working class which which
1: surprised a lot of people i think yeah
0: something that is always tough for us i think in you know british people who have grown up in either the lower middle class or working class it's it's always odd to be seen as kind of (laughs) just pointing a camera at it as if it's kind of bizarre to someone in in london for example yeah
1: that was precisely it we didn't want to exoticize the subject because we felt we kind of knew these boys do you know and so, for us, we didn't want to be some kind of, I don't know, like, I, yeah. Whenever anyone asked us, but how is it going to play with the, you know, whatever so and so, you know, insert X trendy festival here, you know, crowd. Our response would always be, well, and like with obviously with a degree of knowing that you've got to do that as well, and that it's great if those people, it's great for the film and for the future of the film and everyone involved if it has critical success. Our, our real hope was that it could in some way reach ordinary Scottish folk and that they would see themselves in it and like it, you know, Um, that was the, that was, that was the main, that's who it's for.
0: Yeah. There's a a quote that I love that I've kind of mentioned before um, in, in discussing other, other screenplays. And that is that it's a poet should be both local and universal. And so, you know, interestingly, I'm over here in in California now and still, reading press from the american film websites like IndieWire that are raving about beats which is a film set <laughs> set in <laughs> scotland and it has it has translated across the atlantic and it has in the same way that a film like Itumama mama tambien which was yeah. a mexican film made it to britain and people of our generation Watched this and recognised in that film a, a kind of kindred spirit that was translating across those those uh, national boundaries. It's really lovely
1: when it can do that, you know. Like it really, really is. And um, and I was so pleased with the audience response. Of course, the first time it was ever shown to a to a public audience, its actual premiere was was at Rotterdam Film Festival. And um, sitting in the audience at Rotterdam, which was because it's a great festival, and because the film had a good uh, sort of position in the festival. Like it was, it was really full, big cinema, you know, um, which was super exciting. And uh, there was, we used the track um, the Dominator by Human Resource in the, in the rave scene. And there was a guy who, in the Q&A after, who just wanted to thank the makers of the film for using that track, because I'm not sure if it actually comes out of Rotterdam, but it had this big, big resonance for their um, for their rave scene. And it, like, really, like... For, so, so he really, really, like, uh, you know, connected with the story in the way in which we were just discussing around it crossing national boundaries and stuff. But to have that, like, crystallised by this, uh, this, this track that had... Huge resonance for him was like really meaningful for him and it was just one of those really nice moments of like cross-cultural like connection that stories can can bring about so it's nice to sort of hear reflected back of the film sort of living uh, around the world in that in, in that way
0: yeah, something maybe you couldn't have imagined when you were just performing it in Scotland. Well one hundred
1: percent. No. When I walked out of the premiere at Rotterdam, I was just like, geez, <laughs> this is this something something else has happened with this now. Um so yeah, I mean it was like I say, when I first performed, when I sat down to write this sort of stage play story piece, um I I, I completely wasn't consciously trying to like do a kind of showcase for a film idea. I think that that's really important to note to anyone thinking of doing the same thing Mm -hmm. I think particularly in like fringe theater these days as um, in the UK anyway as money gets tighter and tighter and tighter than it used to be there's there's a lot more uh, interest and also as you know with the streamers and everything as actually you get more and more and more kind of um, bold and ambitious like investment in commissioning new unheard of writers in like tv and sometimes and in plus sections of the film industry there's a bit more there's a bit you know there's a bit of a thing of writers who did sort of like fringy wo-fi theater shows getting picked up for 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 screen in a way that maybe wasn't the case in the 90s when you would just keep writing plays for your whole time so you know the, the obvious ones like fleabag and stuff mm-hmm. but then also like the writing team in succession and all of that yeah and that's cool and exciting i think one of the dangers is that folks starting out in theater now then sort of see that as the path, and then set to set out to write their like one-hour like Sogo Edinburgh fringe show um, with a view to it being like feature film ready, or with a view to it being like six-part comedy drama adaptation ready. Do you know? And actually, I think that that is probably going to be death to the whole enterprise. You know, one of the reasons Beats the play worked is because I, I set about to make a theatre show, and then it worked on its own terms, which made people notice it which then gave me the opportunity to adapt it into something else. But that process of adapting it into something else meant really thoroughly killing the original thing stone dead first and then building it back up from there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, yeah.
0: yeah, so it's more about being prepared, having the story you want to tell, Yeah. but really honouring the format that you are telling it in. Definitely not trying to jump ahead one format and seeing something as a stepping stone to something else. Yeah.
1: To not use whatever you're doing in the moment as an advert for something else, because then it will only ever be an advert for that thing. And then people are going to see that and go, well, this isn't a very good theater show. This feels like an advert for the TV show. And if you don't think you've written a very good theater show, they're not going to, you're not going to be first in line to write them a TV show. You know, it's one way of looking at it. I'm sure there's others, but like, um, certainly my experience was I didn't mean to write a film and that's yet somehow could I've ended up. Maybe I'm just lucky as well, I don't know, I guess so.
0: Well, they I think they combine luck and preparedness. Yeah, they do. There's definitely a sense in what you were doing in that nothing was holding you back. You felt like alright, I don't have any actors, I don't have a director, I'm going to do this yeah. myself and I'm going to figure out a way to make something, which is, you know, the Kind of the, as long as that energy is there, I think you can achieve something. It-
1: yeah, and Scotland actually, where I was living, when I'm living, where I live and work now, and where I was when I was making that, was actually a kind of decent place in which to do that. You know, you it was, uh, you could the the community and industry of, around theatre and the arts was substantial enough to be able to sustain the early stages of someone's career if you get lucky and if you try hard and are all these things and if things align for you but also small enough for you to only, to always be within spitting distance of, like I'm, if I'm someone who's a complete unheard of, unknown guy doing this thing, but you, you're able to get the Traverse Theatre or the National Theatre of Scotland or whoever in the room, do you know? Yep. So uh, it, it's, there's a little bit less jostling for attention, do you know? So um, so yeah, but it is just about that, having a kind of can-do attitude about it really. Um, and having the desire to get your story
0: heard by people. Really good. Um, I think there's lots for people to think about just with that. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe now we could move into the actual discussion of Beats itself, just the, you know, the story and the yeah, characters. Sure. So one of the things I wanted to start out by talking about is how you set this up, how you begin the story, because I think you've got these intersecting but parallel worlds. You've got Spanner, who's from a very difficult home situation Mm. where he's got this older brother who is verbally abusive, physically abusive, a real bully to, Mm -hmm. to his brother. And, you know, then you also have, um, Jono, who's got kind of the, I wouldn't say the opposite home life, but it's got that, that veneer of respectability that makes them want to distance themselves from, from families like, like Spanners. Mm -hmm. But there's still that kind of sense of in both families as there's, there's a a little bit of maybe oppression or mm-hmm. authoritarianism that you know something that's pushing down the individuality of these these two boys and that seems to be kind of where the spark of their their friendship is is colliding here is because they they both have that feeling of wanting to be autonomous and figure things out for themselves you know the typical things that teenagers want to do mm-hmm.
1: a- absolutely so i think they're um, and they're just two kids that um that, that see each other you know john was able to open up around spanner in a way in which he sort of freezes up another social company and an adult company he's actually extremely like um self-involved and uh, shy kid mm-hmm. um but Spanner's this guy who he's able who sort of accept him, and so when it's just the two of them, he opens up and he's more playful and he's got a sense of humor and he's and so he you know there's a there's a way in which the, that relationship really like allows him to just breathe in a world that he finds suffocating. So it's completely precious to him, really, that relationship. Spanner as well is someone who has been completely written off by everyone that he's ever come into contact with, and the only person that's never written him off is Jono, and so that's completely precious for him as well It's that his company being in John's company is the only place where he's allowed to be because in anyone else's company he is always just a problem that's all he is to anyone so they need each other you know there's two kids that really need each other and at the same time while they're from the same neighborhood in the same neck of the woods they are in fundamentally different positions in terms of sort of social positioning of their family and where they're going Spanner and his whole family have always been completely written off. He's never going anywhere. Mm -hmm. John, you get the impression that his mum has maybe not had the easiest time of it. um, And there's now this new man on the scene, but this new man on the scene is a police officer. He's got a respectable job and he's bringing in enough money into the family for them to move out of this community and go somewhere else. A big new, nice barrett at home development. And so We kind of, that character, Robert, for us, he's kind of emblematic of something to do with the aspirational working class of the 90s and of new labour and New Britain and all of that. And we were kind of interested in, you know, seeing how these boys who really need to be together are actually on some level being pulled apart by where their different home situations sit within this um, new world order of social mobility, you know? And that's kind of what's going on for them. So, Jono is leaving and he doesn't want to be leaving. So, he's not told Spanner that he's leaving yet. And when Spanner finds out that he's leaving, that's like it's really seismic for him. Um,
0: yeah, it's it's kind of your primary conflict in the first act is, is to do with that. Yeah, yeah, um, it really and is. conflict does drive a lot of screenplay. Tie, you know, as, you're, as you were probably figuring out your story and thinking about, well, how does this, how does this work for the screen? You know, sure. often one of the things is where is the conflict, which is always a difficult balance when you want to show a friendship. Yeah. But of course, yes, these, these forces, it ties more into the themes where for, for, you know, listeners who are not from Britain or maybe younger and don't really know kind of the political situation of the 90s. We had kind of the death throes of Thatcherism with John Major just kind of those last few years of a conservative government. And then, of course, New Labour comes onto the scene promising upward no- mobility and education for all, and that education, primarily through the university system, would lift aspirational working class people up into the middle class, and that this would be the solution to a lot of the social dynamics, social problems in Britain that the gulf between the working class and the middle class had been widened under Thatcherism.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's one of the, we were quite keen to avoid, while all of that is the context um, of the of the story, um, uh, and actually the play kind of makes reference more explicitly to the kind of you know, like history of Thatcher's government, like tearing apart working class communities and decimating the trade unions and decimating industry we just decided we took an eventual decision and it took us a while to get there we just decided to give some of that stuff a bit of a steer away from that in the in the film because we just felt that it become the, or the word trope has become a trope but do you know what i mean it's become quite in some ways a predictable like we, we didn't want to go here's you know have a montage at the beginning and go here's thatcher you know she's done the stuff and all that. like we all can know what that film is in, in british cinema So for us, it was much more interesting to think, even though we've got a Tory government in 1994 and the criminal justice bill is a piece of conservative legislation, and that's really, really important. The other significant uh, political thing that's happening in 1994 is John Smith dies and Tony Blair and Gordon Brown are having the initial meetings and forming the initial political pacts in the Labour Party to establish new labour, and that's the direction of travel that we're on as a country, and that's what sort of connects it into now, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. So we were more interested in following that, the context of that trajectory. I think maybe we let John Major off the hook as a result a little bit, to be honest, but there it is, Um, maybe, maybe you can't do everything, but that's certainly what's going on. Um, and what you're saying about conflict yeah like that was the key thing was finding when it became clear that this was a becoming a buddy movie in a way in which the play is not the play is about both boys but it follows john completely um when it became clear that what we had here was something that was much more a buddy movie and that was going to be an important part of how it, how it worked that it was all about finding what those fault lines were in their relationship yeah they need each other but what can they not say to each other do you know um what is the what is pulling them apart in a way that they're actually powerless about? What is unspoken, um, and playing out that those fault lines in the relationship through the action of the film, through putting them in increasingly high pressure situations and taking them on this big journey through the underworld subculture of of the rave scene. Um, it's all about how that context that you're taking them in and how that journey that you're putting them on is bearing on that central relationship. What does it do? Do you know? That's when it begins to really. To, to really work, I think.
0: Yeah, uh, from what I understand in the the play, the the stepfather character Robert, his mm-hmm. he's not actually present in that story. There is a policeman, but it's not directly part of.
1: He's not the stepdad. Yeah, he's got the same name as the guy in the film. Yeah. The character's name is PC Robert Dunlop, and PC Robert Dunlop exists in the um, in the play, but he's not John's stepdad. And actually early drafts of the screenplay maintained that until we realized that it just wasn't making any sense. For this to work in a kind of coherent first act, what we needed to do was bring everything home into John's home, you know, so that it just made much more sense and everything started falling into place once we made that decision. But that was a big deviation from the the original.
0: It's very interesting because there are certain segments or certain scenes in the film that me, the first time I watched it, having no idea that the play was the way it was. Mm. When you read in a review or something like that, that this is based on a play, you imagine, okay, so there was all these characters on stage interacting. Yeah, of course. And some of those those scenes, especially the one with um, Robert giving a speech, at, yeah. uh, a toast at dinner, yeah. I really thought that had come from the stage because it, it lays out so much character. And yeah. I think in terms of, in terms of looking at dialogue here, this is this is a speech that's full of these kind of hidden meanings or undertones, I think, where you can kind of see this, what he's personifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, you know, there's certain things that he is trying to push Jono in the right direction in terms of, you know most of us don't want to get in trouble with the law and have a criminal record or the the kind of repercussions that come from that, but there's also this sense of him he's kind of worked his way into this family and the the language he's using of you know how proud he is of this family feels quite um there's some, there's something that's kind of unsettling about the way he puts that I think yeah and it is interesting to me how that felt like there was there was just a legacy of the theater there.
1: It's funny, yeah, how knowing that it's adapted from a stage play then uh, gives you, as a viewer, a certain framework through which to sort of, you know, like, um, consume the film, if you like, through which to receive the film. It maybe, while that scene is, is completely not in the play, it's got nothing to do with the play, it's something that was written entirely for the film. It might be, in ways that I've never thought about before until you've uh, suggested, you know, until you've observed that, that... Um, what you are seeing is some overhang of my kind of um, comfort zone as a, as a theatre writer. Do you know, that, like if it feels feels and smells and looks and sounds a bit like a bit from a stage play, it's not from the stage play, but maybe I'm writing it a little bit like a, might a stage play, I don't know. Um, but certainly we're asking that speech to do a lot of work on the level of, yes, character, like revealing and unpacking this guy for us because we then don't spend a huge amount of time with him again after that. Um, but also that is, is doing a lot of thematic legwork as well. There's, uh, there's actually there's a Tony Blair speech on in the telly while that's happening, and yeah, there's, it's that tricky thing. Our Act One could have, been, could have lasted ages if you're not trying. You're trying to set up things so economically because you're always wanting to stay with your principal characters, We're wanting to stay mm-hmm. with Jono and with Jono and Spanner like through all of this. Um, but there's quite a lot that we're wanting to like establish and get going about the world of it. Like, where are we? We're in 1994, what's happening in this community? This is happening. Who's he in this community? He's this guy. Who is this guy? He's someone else. You know, there's quite a lot that you really want to just get really, really, really clear in the audience's mind, so you can just get on with it. You know, and it's very, very hard to do that um, in a way that is both effective in what it is you're trying to do, which is communicate a lot of context and social information and character information very, very, very efficiently, Um, and also, at the same time, doesn't feel false and expositional. It's really, really hard, actually. It's what makes an act one really hard to write. So certainly it's the case that that speech, I think, is doing a lot of heavy lifting.
0: Mm. Yeah, there's... uh, I'm just thinking back to something that... um, When I was at university, I did colonial history yeah. of uh, Latin America. One of my professors was encouraging to look at uh, a concept called agency in terms of how people who are stripped of certain freedoms yeah. still do things to resist the authority being put down upon them. And that, you know, these small acts of agency tell us a lot about how people really felt, you know, compared to the, the documented records. And I'm just thinking about that in terms of this speech with the stepfather giving the speech and offering it's kind of his fig leaf is to offer champagne to Jono. And this is something that would be very tough to do in a medium. Other than film is a close up of him just necking the champagne. (laughs) Just that's his little, that's his little bit of agency there. It's his response to this is to just to, there's one thing I have control over here and it's to, I'm not going to drink this politely and civilly in front of you. Yeah. I'm just going to drink the whole thing in one go. Yeah. This is who I am, you know, it reveals yeah. a lot in just that instant.
1: It's a small act of rebellion, isn't it? And you almost get the impression that he's not even intending to for it to be a massive act of rebellion, but then it kind of, it clearly is as well, you know, like he's, um, he necks it and then, like the moment is killed, stone dead, so he has to storm off to his room, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah, it certainly is that. It's a little bit of a, I am not going to play ball with this, this thing that you're asking me to play ball with. Um, I know that I have to accept by the same time I don't accept. And you're right, it is about holding on to his agency and learning to be someone who can claim his own agency in the world it is it's part of what John has got to learn over the course of the film. And that's a little premonition of that, I suppose. It's also just classic stroppy teenager stuff as well, which is why I think that it's relatable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um Yeah, and another thing I think that obviously setting up the conflict and the positions is is one of the fundamental things you have to do at the start. But another is is the goal, and so the goal is simply to attend a rave yeah. with at, <laughs> at 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 any cost. And I think one of the ways that that kind of gets us on board as an audience is this there's almost a religious appeal to this this rave scene because you've got the djs talking over the radio waves in this almost preachy fashion you know there's remnants of um almost gospel i think in in the way that they're talking and talking about this kind of promised land this promised event that's coming up but it's all mysterious. You kind of have to be in the know, you have to be following. And so we can, I think once that's added in, we are kind of on board with everything, you know, we're, we're willing to follow Jono and and Spanner and find out how they're going to get to this place. So the way he's talking over the radio is it's almost religious. I think the way he, he talks, he's, he's encouraging them to believe in something to come together around this, this idea.
1: Yes. Yeah, totally. Um, it it it's it's um there's for him there's also a sense of um, political purpose to it as well, which isn't there with, it, with everyone, you know. Um, but he has he has a deeply anti-authoritarian spirit, and he really really believes in some loosely defined way in the power of the collective and the power of collective rebellion or against authority. Like, that is what really is turning him on about all this stuff. So for him, this is a party scene, yeah, but it's also a protest against the criminal justice bill. Uh, and it's also a, a statement of, like, defiance about, like, collectively who we are as a sort of wild, celebratory, hedonistic people. And so for him, yeah, it does take on the quality of some kind of, um, like... Spiritual gathering almost. Now, we've he's deliberately written as a character who is slightly like slightly unhinged. So he's able to speak these big truths in a way that is like sort of turned up to eleven, which gives all the other characters that might not necessarily have come to the same conclusions or might be not quite on his wavelength, or maybe if they are and find it exciting, but are just like whatever. It gives him, everyone else, the opportunity to undercut him a little bit, take the piss a little bit, while he still maintains his authority and standing within the group because of who he is. He runs a pirate radio DJ, and he's their ticket to the, to, to the event, you know? He's the, he's the way in. He's the one that's well-connected to all of this. But also, other folk do give him a ribbon a little bit for the scouty sort of, like, preacher, sermon, like, prophetic kind of prose that he is uh, habitually, like, comes out with. And in many ways, that's a bit of a writerly device as well. It's like there's stuff in there that we want to be part of the context of how you hear and receive this story. So the story is told very much at John Owen Spanner's level, but there's also all of this big, interesting sort of anarchist sort of thought around it that we want to be part of how you receive the story. And so giving all that to D Man so he can just kind of like embody it and own it, but it doesn't necessarily have to be something that's operating on the level of our boys who are not not, not, not necessarily bothered about all that stuff or not yet. Um was that he he's kind of our our way of giving voice to all that stuff really.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean he's he's not exactly the um, the religious preacher. He's not the a Scottish Presbyterian. He's more he's more like a shaman. <laughs> in yes, a way.
1: Exactly, yeah. Completely, completely. He's not moralistic, um, but he is um he is shamanistic, you're right. You know, he, he that's that's a, a much more apt uh, comparison.
0: Yeah, an experimentation, but, you know, what are the realms of reality we can exist on? And this is, I think, the act of rebellion, The one of the things that's, I think, conveyed best through this medium in, in the sense that you you do teach a couple of things along the way without setting out to teach anything. And I think one of those things is that, legislation for the sake of order and um in the context of when this law was passed i'm sure there were arguments put forward about protecting people and this is dangerous activity or whatever it is but Mm. there's a there's a moment when they're they're actually at the rave and Mm. d-man is telling him this is what they can't get from us it's our it's our brains this is this is ours they can't they can't infect this, and that kind of links it more into the the wider realm of um, stories about government. You know, Nineteen Eighty Four mm-hmm. and and stories like that.
1: Yeah, I think it does, and I think he's conscious of that as well. I think he understands his role as like potentially, like you know, um, opening up the mind of this young boy towards a a realm of possibility that he might not have encountered Uh, And I think he also understands exactly what he's doing when he gives him all of that spiel when he's coming up on ecstasy for the first time, (laughs) you know, Um, which is certainly entering a world of psychological, psychic possibility that he's never never experienced before. But for D-Man, those things are connected. The exploration of the mind and of each other and of each other's presence and company and community that happens under the influence of ecstasy is absolutely about like, uh, transcending the authoritarian structures of the society that we live in, which is what the both boys want to do at the start of the film. You know, you mentioned it yourself. They're both kind of contained and suffocated by different, by quite different, but nevertheless very real and threatening authority figures. You know, I and mean, Both of them want to transcend that, and uh, the rave is where they get to do that in the ultimate way.
0: So... Would you say you yourself are quite influenced with this hero's journey style of writing in terms of how you structured the story and, you know, this idea that it does build up There's, I could probably pick out some of these points in terms of there's a refusal of the call, you know, where... Spanner is kind of really trying to encourage Jono to come with him, and Jono's saying no, and then of course the acceptance of the call when he realizes how important this is to their friendship. Yeah. Did you structure this around that idea, or is that more unconscious in your in your writing?
1: Not consciously. We didn't consciously go. This is going to be a hero's journey story, and therefore there's like a science around this has to how this has to be in order to work, and it's going to work this way in you know, order to achieve this thing and do that. It's less that and more that. And sometimes some of those I think sometimes it can be a quite tired like approach to understanding screenwriting is to go like there, is, there are these ways and they have already been set out you know like all this Blake Snyder stuff and all that you know like, um, and then at the same time when you get if you're getting stuck you know, you're doing a lot of work when you're writing a screenplay in terms of what I said earlier about all the how efficient you have to be in, in, in getting various things established in your first act, and then trying to like marry like a wider thematic sort of social conversation with the uh, dynamics of the central relationship, so that everything is always driven through this relationship and through these two young boys, but you're still having and holding this wider conversation about about the world, about Britain, about who we are and how we got to where we are, and. Like doing all that is a lot. Like you're navigating a really, really, really uncertain sea when you're trying to steer a screenplay through all of that stuff. You know, it's a stormy, stormy ride. And sometimes consulting a little bit of a pre-existing map can just help you steer to safety a little bit and then you're back on track. So we certainly paid heed to some desire to structure it in a in a way that felt like it had a satisfying arc and all of that. But we didn't set out to be like this is a hero's journey. We set out to adapt to play. It just so happened that the play already had quite a quite a, quite a, recognisable kind of arc, which was slightly more maybe accidental or impulsive or instinctive. But what we set out to do was adapt to play and tell something that had the same sort of shape and story and energy as the play, but for screen. And so that, everything else fell from, fell from there, really. Of course, the other thing that you're also navigating in that process is notes, is other people's notes. And how much of those people are defaulting to their own, impulses or assumptions about how a screenplay in inverted commas should look is is its whole other question and you know mm-hmm, yeah. those are notes that are sometimes going to be from people who you have a really sympathetic relationship with because they are actually your peers and collaborators like if you've got a really good producer which we luckily did and, or like we've got some script notes from Steve Soderbergh as well who I never met over the course of the process but who you know fed back on the script and stuff like all of that's great um, but then you're also fielding notes from, uh, from loads and loads of other parties, like right? the, where the finance is coming from and stuff. So, yeah, so where am I going with the notes chat? Just to say that how much we as writers are defaulting to a bunch of assumptions about how a screenplay and inverted commas, again, should look is one part of the question and the main part of the question. But there's also like what everyone else is bringing to the table too because it is a massive team
0: sport. Yeah, and your even the editor will will have that input as well. I imagine completely. Yeah, you know, a lot of the rave scene is going to be just going along to a rhythm that becomes very much just in the the realm of film. You know, yeah, into overlaying images and sound and things like that that happens towards the end.
1: Yeah, totally. So it's sort of it, 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 for me the film sort of structurally like follows quite a, actually quite a small and recognisable arc of being like a. Whether you want to say hero's journey or whether you want to say a conventional buddy movie, like road movie, whatever, like there's a kind of conventionally filmic shape, but it has this one moment, you know, two thirds of the way through, where that kind of like breaks, and we actually spend about six or seven minutes where like no words are spoken, and so sort the of whole thing sort of like um, overspills the frame a little bit um, as the as the rave scene enters into a much more kind of psychedelic surreal like filmic language, you know, and that for me is really exciting. I think, that, I think it's a really bold thing, particularly that Brian has done there as a director, where the film, I think just at the point where you're really feeling like you know what it is, has the capacity to completely confound your expectations.
0: Mm. And in, in that sense, I think the emotional part of the journey is something that comes to the forefront. And there's a lot of experimentation in terms of how you convey the emotion itself. Especially when you have a character like Jono who has, um, because he's more introverted and is very much on guard around other people, you you have to find these moments to draw out the emotion. Yes, uh, like one that's a really simple one, but I really love is just when Spanner tells his, uh, Jono's boss that he's died. <laughs> it's just, it's just such a brilliant, hilarious moment because I think we've all been. In that situation where, you know, you've asked someone to do something for you to get you out of something and it doesn't exactly go the way you want. But of course, this is just like, 10 times worse you know <laughs> how do you live this down how do you explain this
1: yeah I mean it, it really it really illustrates something at the heart of their relationship as well which is for all of the kind of really nice sentimental stuff I was saying about how much they need each other like Spanner gets Jono in trouble man like a lot mm-hmm. do you know what I mean and he knows <laughs> it and he plays up to it and he's not afraid to do it in order to get what he wants out of him um, and that is one very, very severe example of that. Where he phones, his worked to call him a city when John was finally agreed to come to be like seeking the rave with him, and um, and uh, rather than he goes deliberately completely over the score and tells him that he's dead. I'm laughing now. I'm allowed to laugh because I didn't actually write that gag. I'm pretty sure that one started with Ryan, so it's not like I'm laughing at my own jokes. Um, but yeah, that is a a a, a key moment.
0: Yeah, in terms of Spanner's actual arc mm-hmm. as well, there is a sense that early on he there's a lot he wants to say to his brother. Mm-hmm. And the worst part of it, of course, is when his brother actually tries to burn his face on a on a hob in the kitchen. Yeah. yeah. But there's also a sense that this is coming through in terms of the way he's he's telling Jono to be, that almost unconsciously a little bit, you know, he's telling him you need to stick up stand up for yourself with that supermarket manager who's telling you to put all the jars perfectly and, um, yeah, again, a nod towards the, uh, the lack of individuality that's allowed to, to teenagers when they're working in these mundane places and, you know, they're stuck at home and all of this Spanner's encouraging Mm -hmm. him to do that. But by the end of the film, when Jono's mum shuts the door on him, he rings the doorbell again. Mm -hmm. Like he's, he's also learned over the course of this journey to stand up for himself.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's a really key moment, and it's maybe the one thing that leaves us with any hope that things might work out all right for Spanner, because it doesn't look great for Spanner. John was going, Spanner's staying. Kind of imagine John was life taking on the shape that allows him to take what's useful and enabling and transformative from that experience, I, I, I think. So there's a bittersweet part to the ending, but, but he nevertheless, you're right, has learned to stick up for himself. So he does know something new about his own power. And maybe, maybe, maybe he might be able to put it to good enough use to be able to get to a different sort of place in his life. Who knows?
0: It, it sounds like you kind of have quite a strong bond yourself with the characters yeah. you created. So I'm wondering, did, did you base them on anyone you know that you know? Or is, that, is there a reason you think this bond became... So, so strong for you.
1: Um, they're not explicitly based on like Spanner, is this guy from like, but they're both, um, both Brian and I identify quite heavily in different ways with Jono. Um, and both of us knew a number of different guys who are a bit like Spanner. That's you know, that's kind of it, and we were conscious that we were telling a story that was unapologetically celebratory of all that was exciting and uh, enabling and visceral and powerful and important about this scene but we also didn't want to tell a story that somehow then sugarcoated what it meant for huge amounts of people to get deeply involved in uh, illicit drug subculture it can be treacherous and difficult and dangerous and it's more treacherous and difficult and dangerous if the if certain parts of your life are unstable in a certain way or if you're vulnerable in a certain way or if you're structurally marginalised from the systems and communities of support in a certain way. And so it felt important to us, even though it feels sad, to end the film in such a way where that is hinted at and reflected in one of the characters. You know, Jono says to Spanner, "I'll, I'll come and visit you, man. Like, it's cool. And Spanner's like, yeah, yeah, you know. He plays along, but he knows they're on a different track. Um, so in terms of the emotional bond to the characters, I don't know. Like, I wouldn't want to say he's he's based on this guy or he's based on him, but we've both got a lived experience that resonates emotionally with that relationship,
0: put it that way. Mm. So your, your lives have informed the characters without it being autobiographical, without it being a story you are telling about yourself, yeah.
1: Yeah, but, in, but in, it's not autobiographical, but it's, um, but it's infused with, with us both, you know. And one of the reasons the collaboration worked is the world and the set of experiences that the, that the film um, lives in was a place that we could both meet, you know. Um, if it wasn't that, then it wouldn't have worked. So, yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of both of us in it
0: yeah and and in terms of the ending, maybe maybe to even just look at this right now. what was your intention with that ending, and do you think it was conveyed in the way you'd hoped for? And if it you know, if you wished it was open to interpretation, I think that's that's a completely valid way of writing it. But then how do you, as an audience member, watching the scene back yourself, start to interpret what you see?
1: We wanted it to be open to interpretation. We wanted it to close the story with the two of them very much together. But I did also want to leave open, at, I wanted the audience to leave asking on some level, what happens to these guys. Um And uh, I feel like there's so much going on in Lauren's performance, who plays Spanner in that scene, but that is infused with pathos, that scene. Um, from, from the work that he's doing. Uh, and I'm very happy with that. I'm satisfied with that. You know, it could have just been a slightly more cosy or he's been let in by his mum. Like, Jono's mum finally let Spanner into the house. The boys are together. They're cuddling on the bed. It's quite cute and it's quite nice. And that, we want that, you know, I wanted that level of, like, heart warmth to be present in how it, how it is tonally. But you also want to be looking at it and still seeing different forces that are pushing these boys away from each other still at work, maybe, you know? And I think I'm, I think I'm pleased enough with how that's there. I think it, for me, I think it, I think that reads. But also, if it doesn't, that's fine, too. If someone likes the ending on a different way, or someone's, th- that's cool, as well. I mean, the thing with the, um, what follows that scene is then these sort of, like, cards of, like, what happened next for each of the main characters in the ensemble. And I guess the thinking about that is about trying to then pull us back into the present day. So that we've looked at this very nostalgic kind of telling of this like gang of youngsters and some of us might have been those youngsters um but personally i would have been nine in 1994 so it's definitely not autobiographical. but um uh it would have been a more sinister tale otherwise um but uh but we'd sort of part of that is about inviting sort of like cracking, smashing the nostalgia a little bit and inviting us okay so where are we now you might have felt like that hopeful idealist young man you might have been that pirate radio dj do you know what i mean like this is where we think these guys are now. Where are you? Um, and really bringing it into the present. Uh, so I guess that's kind of what we want to do. I think we did it. I don't know. I don't think we would have let it get to shoot and draft without it feeling like we were doing that. Um, but, of course, it's open to, open to other people's judgment. It's ultimately, will always be other people uh, to for other people to decide whether it does that or not.
0: Yeah, that, that last little epilogue in the, these cards saying... What happened to yeah. each of the characters? Um, there, there is a little parallel to Itumama también there as well, which Absolutely. is that they they do have that similar ending of that the this formative experience for, for two teenagers yeah. doesn't necessarily continue into the, later in their lives, and I think this is kind of tied up with the kind of ramifications of the uh, the upward mobility as well. That what what does start to happen in britain especially is the idea that there's a big group of young people at the age of 18 who go off to university and start a new life and then there's the others who are kind of left behind and that even though those friendships might last uh, theoretically and when friends see each other after a long time they still can get along but they've they've gone on to live in different worlds because of this this divide
1: it's, a, it's, it, it, it's it, it exists right across so many classic, like, coming of age, like, movies. And I think the reason it does is just because that's where we want to be after we've <coughs> seen these sort of uh, stories, you know, as we're sort of asking ourselves as an adult audience how it relates to our own experience and how it relates to, you know, growth into adult life and how you carry the formative experience that happens over the course of the film into, into your adult life or whatever, like, is... It's done differently. It's done within the rate or voice, but it happens at the end of Stand By Me. I think they use cards the way that we do in like American graffiti. You know, like it's definitely like, and you know,
0: well they do. Yeah, one of the characters has died in Vietnam, for example. Yeah, for example. It says, you know, it really drives home the fact that uh, something's happened to these people. They're real people.
1: Exactly, and it puts it and it helps establish it in a social context, even just right at the end. Of, you know, um, so. I think the jury's out a little bit with some people's response to those cards. Some people felt they were too bleak and they kind of like took the went out the sails of the kind of I just want to go to a rave and get mashed and dance now thing. But we kind of wanted the film to be, do all that, but to still live within a kind of maybe slightly more sober like uh, social conversation. So, um, so yeah. yeah well that's, that's, the, that's how we, how we uh, pitched it at the end.
0: All right. Well, being conscious of time, then, I'm just going to ask you one final question. And that is, what is one thing you learned while working on the screenplay adaptation that you wish you had known at the start?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. It's going to take a long, long time. <laughs> like, we sat down and we're like, I'd never written a film before, right? I'd never written for a screen before at the start of this process. Um, we sat down and we're like, yeah, we've got a lot here. Just really stick our heads together, we can like get a draft of this out. But we had to write through so many different versions of what the film was before we even hit upon like what draft one was of the version that you now see, if you see what I mean. Like, there was like so much stuff, ideas, and thoughts that we had to wade through. And I think that you know that's just what we had to do and maybe knowing that in the outset wouldn't even have necessarily changed much but it would have certainly made the kind of emotional journey of like writing and rewriting and notes and notes and notes um it, slightly more manageable maybe um i wonder if i also would have just liked to have been able to tell myself that it was gonna get made which i never ever ever believed until like you know we were in a financing meeting with bfi and i was like they might actually <laughs> they actually give us the money um uh But that was all part of the highs and lows. But in terms of like from a writerly perspective, yeah, being prepared to really strap in for doing a lot of rewriting and a lot of work and that being the gig, you know, much more so than anything I'd ever done before at that point because even as a theatre writer, I was still fairly early on in my career and I was operating in such a way where I was mostly doing quite loose, rough and ready DIY stuff where I would like throw the idea out and get it on a stage. Um, And this was just something completely different and I don't think I was prepared for it entirely um so that would be that would be my big one
0: well it, it does sound like a fantastic journey and um now i think it you know you're going to be working on new stuff and i'm really looking forward to seeing what you do next
1: thanks a lot um, man cross your fingers for me yeah. because it still feels like an uncertain time so i hope i hope to have something to show you at some point
0: <laughs> wonderful yeah i mean it is uncertain but we're it's also good for writers that we can also have excuses to lock ourselves away. I suppose. I think
1: that's so true, man. And it's been a pleasure to chat with you about the films. So thanks.